Hey, Bill. I am so happy that we're doing this today. Yes, Carla, it is so good to see you again, to hear from you. We are back on the pod. We are back with our podcast, Heads Down, Two Thumbs Up. And this is where we talk about movies that talk about schools. And this week... We are talking about one of my favorites, and hopefully now one of your favorites, School of Rock. Yes. So, jump right in with the synopsis. Are you ready? This is coming from IMDb. I have two synopsises. What is the plural? Is it synopsi? I feel like it's not. Synopsi, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to do two of them. So, here's the IMDb synopsis. After being kicked out of his rock band, Dewey Finn becomes a substitute teacher of an uptight elementary private school, only to try and turn his class into a rock band. I was like, all right, all right. Summary for IMDb. Sometimes they're really long, but that was a yes. two-liner. Sought myself. That was. Yeah. And, and you were just saying, like, since we've done our last podcast, uh, chat GPT and AI in general has completely exploded upon humanity. It has. So did you consult the chat GPT? I did. I consulted chat GPT and asked for summarizing the plot of the movie School of Rock. So here's chat GPT's version. School of Rock is a 2003 film about a down-on-his-luck musician named Dewey Finn who poses as a substitute teacher at a prestigious prep school. While teaching, Dewey introduces his students to the joys of rock music and inspires them to start a band and compete in a local Battle of the Bands competition. The film's themes include the power of music to bring people together and the importance of following one passion. Nice. I'm I'm interested in how IMDb talked about the school as an uptight elementary private school and uh, ChatGPT sort of more about prestige. So we'll have to maybe think a little bit about that. Right, right, right. So who do we have? Director, writer, stars, all the all those humans. Yeah. I mean, this movie was directed by Richard Linklater, and he, of course, did um Dazed and Confused, as well as oh, so many other movies, the sort of before sunset, after sunset trilogy. He directed those. Um, he directed Boyhood. So he's been around for a long time, but this was probably his biggest movie um, in many ways, at least in terms of overall uh, profits and views and kind of, I think, probably longevity. We have the amazing Jack Black as the lead, Dewey Finn. <laughs> and yeah, Jack yeah. Black the musician himself he's a real live musician in fact all the all the kids actually played their own music in school of rock as yeah, well yeah they but sure were jack black is a musician he's actually in a band called tenacious d um and i can tell you all about my tenacious d concert at some point um but he uh plays the lead he plays dewey finn and he is got this incredible sidekick in this movie uh who is played by the very best Joan Cusack, who plays the principal of the uptight elementary school. Uh, <laughs> prestigious. <laughs> prestigious, uptight. She is very uptight, let me just say, in this movie, and she's fabulous. And the two of them make for just an incredible uh, sort of juxtaposition of the slovenly, lazy, lying uh, Jack Black's character of Dewey Finn and, and her character um, as the principle of being extremely uptight, put together, and yet a closeted Stevie Nicks fan. So that's that's how 
breaks into her. Um, so yes. those are those are the primary sort of movie stars, and there are a lot of other um, uh, characters who are sort of bit characters, including Sarah Silverman as Patty DeMarco yep. and and Mike White, who is the co-writer, I believe, of the of the movie, who plays sure Ned Schneeble. Schneeble. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I also so loved um, that I had not noticed right away. Adam Pascal was the singer of the band at the very beginning and the very end. Do you know Adam Pascal? No, who is that? Um, so I know him as Roger, the original Roger from the play Rent. So if you have the original oh. cast recording of Rent, that is Adam Pascal. And Miranda Crossgrove, who was um, the uh, played one of the key young people in the movie um, had a long career as I think I Carly. Um, I want to say, was that her big, was that a big, her yeah. Big? Oh, that sure was. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these young uh, characters came back in, in other ways. Yeah. Nice. We're going to jump into some big themes here, but maybe we just go a little bit chronologically and then see where the, uh, the themes take us. Sure. I'd love that. All right. So we start off in a dive bar they're rocking out. Well, and, and I think it all went downhill pretty quickly once he took his shirt off and then did the stage dive onto nobody and fell on the pavement. <laughs> I think my favorite line at the beginning. Dude, I serve a society by rocking, okay? I'm out there on the front lines liberating people with my music. Rocking ain't no walk in the park, lady. Yes. He's like trying to justify all of his... Uh, all of his behaviors, Dewey. Yeah, when he's when he's talking with Sarah Silverman's character, yeah. Patty. Yeah, what do you do? You're just a temp. I'm a substitute. So funny. So pretty quickly, you know, we get the shtick that, um, that Dewey is going to start substituting because he needs to make rent because Ned Schneebly's girlfriend is giving him a hard time for the freeloading. And so this is where we get to meet Joan Cusack's character, Roz. She right. calls him. He kind of gets into the sub business, though, a little bit you know, kind of in a, in a, a roundabout way, right? Because he actually just poses as Ned Schneebly and his roommate and manages to answer the phone when Joan Cusack's character calls for a substitute teacher. And he, he basically blatantly lies and gets himself this subbing job at Horace yeah. Green, Green Prep. He sure does. I read on the IMDb trivia, and I, I didn't pay attention even after having read it and watching it again, that Jack Black would change the part in his hair from one side to the other if he was Ned or if he was Dewey. Um, yeah. And I like that. Let's let's say that that was a thing. And that makes complete sense. You know, you got to get in the right character. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love right away, even though <laughs> Dewey clearly like has not set out to be a progressive educator in any way. Uh, you know, he just he just needed some cash, and uh, you know he's like walking around. He meets the kids. He's like, it's recess time, and he looks up at the behavior chart, and he's like, What are these black dots here? Demerits. What kind of a sick school is this? Hmm? Okay. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. It's fabulous. It is yeah. fabulous. It speaks so much to what I totally adore about this movie. I mean, I do not like the character of um, 
Jack Black's character at all at the beginning of this movie. He is mm-hmm. so disgusting and self-centered and really appalling. I mean, there's very little redeemable qualities about Dewey in the opening part of this movie. I'm as frustrated with him as his uptight roommates are. Um, And at the same time, like there's this kernel of something in him that you see is going to be just what this school needs. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. school is going to be just what he needs, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that juxtaposition kind of carries the whole thing, you know, like in, I had actually not seen this until you and I decided to do this. I watched it for the first time this past fall. Um, and you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say it. It's like, I, I actually wrote rock music with my fourth and fifth graders when I was teaching music. So like of all the movies I should have watched, I suppose this would be, you know, top five and, and just, I, ne- I had never seen it. Um, mm-hmm. it kind of blows me away, but I, I think the movie kind of carries itself. Like, you see the setup, you're like, okay, I know what's going to happen for the next 90 minutes for sure. You're like in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Right, right, right. But, you know, part of our job in our, and in this role on this podcast is to talk a little bit about kind of the stereotypes and the tropes of schools and for sure. how they play out in movies and films and how oftentimes those films and movies reinforce some of the stuff that we really, you and I both really dislike about sort of traditional school models. And I mean, we both have experience working in private schools and this Horace Green prep school is pretty, you know, uptight, even for private schools. It's very traditional. The kids are wearing their very sweet uniforms. They are sitting in rows as many um, school movies that we've talked about before. They're sitting Mm -hmm. in rows, ready to be, you know, downloaded content and information and getting their gold stars and really making sure that they have their charts and their grades and, and all that stuff. And so it's really teed up for that type of stereotype, traditional education. And then you have Jack Black come in and right away, he's questioning all of that stuff. And so that's like this great moment, right? Yeah. And, and I feel like he has, you know, no horse in the race. He doesn't care about education at all. He just needs to make his rent. And he, you know, so he signed up for this gig. So he's just like, what the heck? Like, what's up with the behavior chart in front of everyone? Uh, and at the time, like in 2003, those were rocking. You know, those were actually right before I got my first teaching job. And my new principal, like, in no uncertain terms, told me that I was to have a behavior chart in that room and use it. And if I wasn't using it enough, like, boy, did I get a follow-up written in my box about that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think for the, for the time, uh, you know, in 2003, like, I, I think even just looking at the behavior chart was like a pretty big deal, let alone let's burn all of the curriculum to the ground and do rock band 24-7. Right. I mean, we have a pretty good sense that Dewey Finn was probably not a great student in school. What do you think? <laughs> right. Yeah, I would agree. I'd agree with that. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, you know, he, he, he has this moment with this class of kids pretty soon Mm -hmm. after he gets there and he happens to see them in music class. And he Mm -hmm. has this recognition that these kids, actually, there may be something redeemable about these sort of horrible children after all. (laughs) And (laughs) he sees them and thinks, wait a second. I was fired by my own band 
I missed being in the Battle of the Bands, which was sort of his goal when you sort of see him at the very beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Wait, maybe there's a way I can still compete in Battle of the Bands. And he sort of starts to look at these kids as sort of his his way, his way of getting um, getting back to Battle of the Bands. Right, which isn't maybe the healthiest way, but it does set things in motion for the character to grow by the end, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I love, I'm going to put my musician head on here for a little bit. I love when he had each kid kind of learn that instrument. You know, you play guitar. And the kid's like, you know, my dad thinks electric guitar is lame. He's like, all right, learn this. And he learns that. And you're like, that's cool. We get the uh, the kid on the keyboard. And he's like, all right, play this. Cool, play that. All right, now now try this. Play the G. And now go fifth above. And now play the middle one. He doesn't say the third. I love he goes the middle one. He's like, no, that sucks. Get, get rid of that. That one sucks. You know, like he's, he's not afraid to try something and immediately like critique his own suggestion, you know, and then right away with our drummer. Okay. Give me like a, like a good. Okay. No, that's bad. That's like George of the jungle played up here on the cymbal, but really light. Oh, that's it. Okay. Keep going with that. Zach. Do you remember this thing? I What? I think he's being vulnerable. I think he's willing to make mistakes. He's willing to like, make music with the kids and not have to be perfect. And I think that that's such a great precedent for what good teaching can look like. Totally. Totally. Yeah. For someone who's just sort of like an abominable character at the beginning, he's actually this incredibly gifted natural teacher in a, in a completely unexpected way. So yeah, absolutely. Even if he's not doing it for all the best intentions. <laughs> right. Right. Yet. But we'll we'll get there. Um, right yeah. up, right after that, we get Lawrence meets him at lunch. He's the keyboard one, and he you know he talks with Dewey and says you know I'm not good enough. And what I love about this one moment is that the actor who plays Lawrence talked with the director and was like I don't think I'm good enough or cool enough to be this character. And basically, the director said the same thing that Dewey says. Yeah. He's like, no, yeah. like, you know, you are good enough. Which which I think is just. It's such a, a small scene, but it's such like a beautiful moment between like a teacher and a student. Yeah. Yeah. It's sweet. He does connect with them. I, I, I think one of my favorite of the early scenes is when he's asking the kids a little bit about their musical influences. And it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So funny. And, you know, Christina Aguilera, one student says, Puff Daddy. And the one kid says, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> yeah. So perfect. That is that is not going to happen, everybody. He's going to teach them all about musicians that rock. Exactly. And then right after that, we get to hear at the class jobs. And I love this so much. The, if I had to pick one moment that felt like the most real-life, project-based learning, whole class project, I think it was that. You know, he talks about security and stylist and transportation and roadies and groupies and band manager um, and I did this just a week ago. Our middle schoolers, our student council, we call them Stuco, they run our Friday morning all-school assembly. Yeah. And they've got their whole thing. Clara is, you know, the, the Stuco teacher that works with them. But last week, all those fifth graders were off on various trips. And so I spent that whole week working with fourth graders. And it was, you know, I was determined that any kid in fourth grade that wanted to help run our all-school assembly called flag because there's a flag there, I guess. Um, anyone that wanted to be in it could be in it. And I was like, all right, we're going to have like, like seven would be the sweet spot. We need at least five fourth graders and more than like 12 starts to get a little bit gnarly. And we got 22 
And so I had to do kind of the same thing. I was like, all right, everybody gets a job. Um, you know, yeah. typically we don't have 22 people running the all school assembly, but sure enough, every single student had a job. Um, and we got it knocked out. You know, I, I did the same thing when I was teaching second grade. We ended up writing a song and making a video. And mm-hmm. I had to have the whole class. And so every kid had their job. Um, and so just as he's giving everybody the job, particularly when he's like, roadies, here's what you're going to do. It's just like, oh, my gosh, I have said this exact thing in my own way. So I guess not the exact thing. But I've said I've done this so many times when I have a big group of kids to, to knock out a project. I just I loved the class jobs so, so much. Yeah. And you know, what's so sweet about what both your story as well as what's happening in the film is that these class jobs and this interest and this engagement is not coming at all from the gold stars. It's not coming from the carrot of a good grade or the carrot of, you know, stars on a, on a chart. It's actually really coming from something inside a kid, right? Um, right. And especially in the story you're telling about 22 kids wanting to show up and be a part of that school assembly. And yeah, I mean, why not give 22 kids if they're interested roles? That's our job, right? As educators. Yeah, yeah it is. If you're interested? Great. Let me see how I can meet you where you are. Let me see how I can get you excited. Um, I also love, like, I feel like the rest of the middle part of this movie it's just kind of a rinse and repeat thing. Like they're getting better. There's one part of the movie that's just a legit montage, but I feel like that kind of middle half hour was just kind of one giant montage. But we have these, these really beautiful little moments where again, we get some of this like pretty intense, like educational philosophy where the kid's asking, you know, what about math? No, not important. World cultures, not important. You guys, we need to focus here. (laughs) Um, you know, and then again, I think we get this vulnerability of Dewey that the first time I watched it, I was just like, why is he making this about himself? But I think part of it was that, but also he was just being kind of vulnerable around the students. So as he sings the not hardcore song about getting kicked out of his band and you're not hardcore, the idea that he can bring an unfinished song to the group and actually like work on the song together. Again, I thought was like, at, at its surface, okay, whatever. But when you really stop to think about like an adult engaging in that with students, that's actually kind of a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing I would just say is that, you know, as, as sort of sort of non-intentional Dewey is as a teacher, as he shows up, he does actually break down this whole rock band idea into some pretty significant content and skills, right? He talks about, you know, the different components of School of Rock and different components of kind of this rock band class. And he talks about learning songwriting skills, learning music history skills, learning movement skills, right? So when it comes down to it, he's actually parsing out the different parts of his curriculum it's just not sit and get curriculum. You know, it's highly experiential. It's highly about taking what you're learning and applying it to something real. So. Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. Um, I actually remember that this feels so vivid. Um, when I was teaching second grade, it was my last year in the classroom. Um, 
I ended up giving them a summative assessment for social studies, learning about kind of maps and cardinal directions and just the scores were so bad. And so for the most part, I, I felt pressure to really move on through the curriculum. It was one of those schools. Um, but, you know, I just kind of looked at it and was like, wow, like I really need to reteach this. How do I do that? Well, I don't have time. So what can I do like in my language arts time to like reteach it? And so I start looking at the second grade language arts standards and look at all this stuff like about rhyming, about poetry, about performance. Um, I was like, wait a minute, we could actually just write a song. There's also music standards in second grade. I started looking at those, jotted all those down. And, and I'm confident that Dewey did not do this. But really, with <laughs> with just a little bit of effort, I was actually able to dig through. And I was teaching like five standards at once as we wrote a song about maps. And it totally worked. And it was amazing. You know, like I, I continue to wonder why we teach so many lessons and skills one at a time in isolation. Yeah, right. This is this was a true, tr- you know, interdisciplinary unit that Dewey was giving them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, and he didn't even know what he was doing. Exactly, perfect. So we pick up. You're right. There was a lot of kind of rinse and repeat. He's trying to get the kids ready for the competition. He's got to actually get them an audition, right? And he tries to mm-hmm. get them out of the. Doesn't he try to like get them out of the school? Isn't there yeah, some he moment? Sneaks them out. Yeah, he sneaks them out and he talks. Oh, and then, and they they actually don't make it in time for the audition, but then he manages to sort of, you know, convince them that they're dying children. They have. Um, what do they all have? It's a, uh, <clears throat> it's a rare blood disease, stichotidomoniosis. What's that? I've never heard of it. You're lucky. Because it's hell. Wow. And of course, all the while, he's just trying to, you know, pull one over with the principal. And she, you know, she's so uptight. There's this one moment where she even talks about the pressure that she has as a as a private school principal. Mm-hmm. And Rosalie Mullen, the name of the character, she says, you can't be funny and be the principal of a prep school. These parents, you know, she's talking about the parents and the pressure that she's under, right? And so she's she's wound so tightly and he's just doing his very best to kind of get her to a place where, you know, this is going to be okay and he can get these kids to, to perform. Well, so we start to get to, is this what the film critics call it, the third act? We're getting ready for like the concerts, the final prep. Yeah. Don't drink tequila tonight, kids. All right. Everyone's <laughs> going to go home and get a good night of rest. And here's where things fall apart. Ned Schneebly opens his mail. And what does he find, Carla? A, a, a check. He finds a check, which is bad news for Dewey. Right. The jig is up. Yeah, it is. The jig is up. It- and, and it all falls apart at back to school nights <laughs> that he didn't know he needed to be at. They learn math, math and English, science, and uh, French. Science. And... What else? Uh, geography, history, Latin, Spanish, French, Latin, uh, math. Did I say that all right? Anyway, you know, just all the stuff you want your kids to know, it's been covered, okay? So, 
it was great to meet y'all and uh, drive safe. Uh, but the police arrive. He makes a run for it. The parents are upset. But the kids decide. They're going to make it happen anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah. they convince. I love, what is the right word for this? Like how bold, how brazen, how, how like. Empowered. Empowered. Yeah. There is the word where they just yeah. walk up to the bus driver and they're like, here's where we're going. We have to go pick up Mr. Schneebly. Then we have to go to battle the bands uh, enough that the, you know, sure it's a movie, but also the bus driver's like, okay, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, so good for summer for being the band manager and doing that, you know, they get on the bus, they get Dewey going and then they rock. Right. Well, you know, that empowerment comes from having done something real. Yes. Right. When we talk about why project based learning or real world applications of learning is actually like so good for kids, it's good for their mental health. It's good for their skill building. It's because it's actually giving them something real that then they can build on in their own lives. Right. So they become empowered they see that they aren't just recipients of knowledge, but they're doers, right? They're not just right. passive, they are active. And so they're able to pull that off, probably fundamentally with no one questioning them because they actually are empowered. They're showing up in that way. Like I have value, here's what I'm gonna do. Okay, why not, right? Which is what they've been learning with Dewey. Yeah. You know, when I hear people talk about project-based learning, I don't often hear about empowerment. Is that mm -hmm. one of your big takeaways or favorite parts of PBL is actually the student empowerment? Yeah, absolutely. I think it gives people something that they can say, oh, I actually did something. Not that I just regurgitated information, but I learned a skill. I learned something. I learned how to actually make something happen. <laughs> And that gives people a sense of empowerment, gives them some sense of, of value, right? So I actually think that's one of my, that's, I think that's an important outcome of project-based learning. For me, the, the more compelling thing has always been making that learning sticky. When mm -hmm. you're really doing a whole big thing about it, you know, certainly compared to, to all the worksheets you're doing kind of all day, every day in, in more traditional school, that project, whatever the, the thing is, um, becomes so memorable in in so many ways mm -hmm. and i think I, I don't know most importantly i was about to say most importantly that they actually learn the content but i think it becomes just an important memory of like of loving learning also right 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 i mean people talk about and this this happens obviously a lot more in high school when people say you know let's just use advanced placement curriculum which to me is like you know kind of like the perfect example of a completely content-based curriculum, right? And you'll have these kids in an AP class and they'll get interested in something that happens. And the teachers will say something like, you know what? I'd love to talk more about that with you, but I can't because we don't have time and I have to cover the content. We have to, we yep. have to move forward. We got to cover all this material. And of course, there's all this thing, there's, there's this idea of the fallacy of coverage, which is the idea that a kid learns it because a teacher has covered it. And of course, that's a total fallacy right there. A teacher has covered it and maybe a student has learned it. <laughs> maybe, right. maybe they've heard, learned a quarter of it. And 
to what end, right? And so this idea of, wait, I can't, I can't go into the stuff I'm really interested in because we got to cover all this content, which I'm never going to remember after I leave this class, right? It's, it's right. absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so why, why do you think schools keep doing that? If we know it's a fallacy, we mm. know that there's research that kids a year later remember 10% of the content at best. Mm -hmm. Why do we continue to spend almost all of our time in schools covering the content? Well, I can trace back why it used to be that way. I mean, it used to be that school and in particular, you know, teachers with a certain expertise were the primary way you learned anything, right? Not necessarily trades, but if you were going to go on to a university level, if you were going to go on to become, you know, a scholar of any given topic, the way you learned things was someone sort of teaching you the information. You had books, textbooks, and you had teachers, right? And so that was really how compulsory education sort of developed, right? But it's totally a different world right now. And we just haven't figured out how to break up with this old model of teaching and really engage kids in ways that are relevant. <laughs> we just haven't figured it out. And it's a lot of work and it's hard because it somehow suggests that, oh, maybe the content isn't all that. It's critical, but it's not the most critical thing. It's not the only part. And then now what do we do? We have to kind of reinvent education and that's really hard right so i yeah. think we're an industry that to really do it right we'd have to unbuild an entire industry talk with a friend john ike who uh superintendent of a couple of charter schools up in sacramento um and asked him kind of a similar question with a different context um and he asked me about high tech high and he's like well like they've they've got like the project-based learning going and uh, when, when Hillbrook was looking at doing our, our schedule redesign, this is, uh, what, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, um, we mm -hmm. spent all day at High Tech High. We got kind of the executive briefing. We got a guided tour. And then we also just got to spend about three hours kind of wandering the hallways, talking with students, like in the wild. Um, and there were two things that I noticed that, that profoundly changed how I look at this. And I'm still unpacking it. And, and Here's the nugget that John gave me after I shared this bit. I noticed that nearly every single makerspace was immaculate, not just clean, but immaculate. And so very clearly, they are not in there all day, every day making, but they had the space. And then the other part was a conversation I had with a couple of seventh graders. A few of us, you know, kind of asked them, we're walking the hallways and they were incredibly gracious and said, you know, any questions? I said, you know, tell me about some of these projects that are up here, you know, like on these shelves in the hallway, they're awesome. And they're like, I, I don't know, like those have been up there ever since I was in first grade. And here they are, you know, six years later. And, and it wasn't so much an exhibition of learning. It was like a museum of what we once were. And so John's take on that was that, you know, they, they had the idea, they got their charter, they had some teachers that really went for it. And then mm -hmm. a couple of years later, things started to shift in personnel. I think a lot of the teachers get burned out really quickly with this type of teaching. And then the, the other part that John kind of hypothesized is that, you know, like this teacher, like their family moved over here. This teacher you know, had some kids and took some time off. This teacher got a job over there. And then before you know it, a few years later, 
that those people that were there initially with that vision of what the school could be, there's nobody really left. And so the way he put it is, you know, all schools will gravitate towards the mean. Right. And I think that there's really something to that. And so I, I don't like, I, I'm left, I don't know, sad about that. Well, I mean, we have, you know, major, major status quo bias, right? In the, it's just a thing. <laughs> so yes, I would say people, institutions, industries gravitate towards the mean for sure. They go back to the status quo. And what does it leave me feeling? It's exactly how I feel about this movie, which is both mm -hmm. absolutely, I love the movie. I think it's kind of a, like similar to like Rushmore, kind of a near perfect movie. There's so much good stuff in here. And it makes me so mad when I watch this movie because I see like the real true beauty of the simplicity actually of a mm. teacher next with students who gives them real world problems to figure out. And it's not that hard and it's not that complicated, but we've like made education so complicated and bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it actually is not at all in service of young people. It's not mm. in service of young people. It is boxes to check and it is assessments that actually are relatively meaningless in the end. And it, it just feels like a calcified system. And I don't know if there's a scalable solution except to let the whole thing implode. I know I'm going to sound so awful, but sometimes yeah, when I think up. and I see like more funding going to public education, I mm -hmm. sometimes think, you know what? Actually, I think you should cut the funding to education. You want to know why? Because it actually just needs to implode <laughs> so we can rebuild it <laughs> into something better. I know that sounds horrible and it's not really what I want because I think for some kids, like whatever is going on right now is their one, you know, especially when you're looking at uh, systems of, of sort of underprivileged um, uh, areas, it's like, School may be the one place kids can get some, uh, you know, get everything that they need from breakfast and lunch and meals to actually people who are really able to attend to them. And so, I mean, school does play a really important function. I don't want it to be underfunded. I mean, I say these yeah. things, but I mean, well, I sometimes but, get so frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> but we even, you know, I think we see that in the movie and I've seen it also in, in private and independent schools that there is a pressure for school to look a certain way from the parents. And I think that was totally. Roz's breakdown in Dewey's van. It's just like, I have to, to deliver on what the parents think a good education looks yeah. like, you know? Oh, so yeah. even if, even if we could blow it all up, you know, public, private, whatever, um, I think if we were to rebuild it, it's, there's so much ingrained with what these unspoken expectations that parents have of what, good school looks like. Um, and I think if you were to really like, you know, hold them to the to task on that, I don't know that parents would, would say like, you know, I had the best education and I want my kid to have the best education. I think a lot of times like, well, no, like I kind of hated school. And yet mm -hmm. I think there's this kind of, you know, bias towards this is what I'm used to. This is what I think school looks like. 
Um, and it's it's interesting yeah. that the movie plays off of that, that it, it kind of holds the like, here's the school, and this is the school that looks like in everybody's head to some extent. And then Dewey is is pushing against that, and you know, in a way that I think resonates with a lot of us. No, I think schools are very much stuck um, in systems that are hard to change. I think parents have certain expectations. I think higher education demands a certain profile for students to go from high school to university, and they have to have taken certain types of classes and be able to demonstrate a certain kind of learning. But then colleges have these students show up and they say, God, these kids are broken. They're not healthy. Um, We're spending all this Mm -hmm. money for counseling services for these young people. Um, We've got a major Mm -hmm. mental health crisis and actually they can hardly live on their own. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. They have no life skills whatsoever. And, you know, you get what you ask for, right? You want these students who can take all these classes and can perform on these tests. Well, you can't have both, right? (laughs) Right, right. You got to choose. And so, you know, I think we're in this really weird, I I call it a little bit of like a stuck place. It is a little calcified. Mm. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, the world continues to change since our last recording. You know, you've had the chat GPT has emerged into the world and artificial intelligence is going to be yet another humongous paradigm shift. And we haven't in schools even grappled with the internet yet. And now we have another thing to work on. It's just going to make our current system even more irrelevant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I watched something like School of Rock like it's so simple like the answer is right there <laughs> in some ways you know it, it sure can be um i i did type in the chat gpt i followed up the yeah. synopsis uh asking for a, a section on the implications for how education can be more progressive are you right. ready for this paragraph i love well, it actually exactly what chat gpt says <laughs> yeah so chat gpt's response one of the key themes of school of rock is the idea that traditional forms of education can be stifling and uninspiring <laughs> And then a more progressive approach can lead to better outcomes for students. In the film, Dewey's unconventional teaching methods and his passion for music help to awaken the creativity and passions of his students and ultimately lead them to success in the Battle of the Bands competition. This suggests that a more progressive approach to education, one that emphasizes creativity, self-expression, and the pursuit of one's passions, can be more effective in engaging students and helping them to thrive. What do you say about that? Spot on. And I think that's part of, I mean, the word that stands out to me in that paragraph is just the word passion. And, you know, that's what Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. see Dewey do in School of Rock when he gives them their jobs. I mean, there's the one kid, I don't know Mm -hmm. what he's assigned to originally, but then eventually he decides he wants to become the the costume designer, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And Dewey's like, great costumes that's your thing right yeah or the girl who is assigned a roadie but she really wants to be a backup singer and she's got this incredible voice right Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. to me education has this incredible possibility of being the place where we find not our necessarily our passion for life because i hope that we all evolve Mm -hmm. as humans and have many passions over our lives 
but that we have the opportunity to try different things and to find things that we can be passionate about or excited to learn or good at or find our skills. And that's a lot more than just being able to say, I'm really good at regurgitating a subject on a particular test. I'm a math kid. I'm a science kid. Actually, that's totally ludicrous because in the world, you might be doing science, but your your passions and your interests might be, you know, really something else sort of in that field or whatever. And so I just think school misses that opportunity way too much to really help kids find what they're really excited to learn about, you know? You know what? As you were saying this, I I just got thinking the name Dewey. Yeah. (laughs) Dewey Finn is our character, right? Like it can't it can't be a coincidence that John Dewey, like his theory of education like in a sentence is that curriculum needs to be relevant to students. I can't believe. Right? Like that's got to be why it's his name. Absolutely. Right? I can't believe I didn't pick up on that right away. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. <laughs> that's brilliant. You know, as you're on your soapbox, I'm just like, wait a minute. <laughs> relevant curriculum. That sounds like John Dewey. Wait. Oh, what? Yeah. But you yeah. know, it's like movie and Rushmore have some similarities, not in terms of the plot or the way things are sort of, but they're these stuffy schools that have kids doing really boring Mm -hmm. things. And in reality, just like, I mean, Max Fisher and, and, and Dewey are, are so similar in terms of the kind of people that they are, what they really want to do is just like access the good stuff. Right. Yep. yep, (laughs) And so I just, I think, if we can just get real as a as an industry and really start to say this what we currently mm-hmm. do is broken, we need to unbuild it and build something that really mm-hmm. opens up kids to being learners, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that his name is Dewey. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah. The very end, like I, I wonder if this movie wraps it up in a way that maybe gives us some hope or some mm-hmm. ideas. They have the battle of the bands. They rock. Their parents end up coming to the concert, mm-hmm. not so much to support them, but because their kids were sort of kidnapped um, and they want to get them, but they still have to buy a ticket and they get in and they find out that their kids are actually really talented and they get to see them go from like zero to 60 on that stage. Right. You know, they didn't even know their kids were in the band and suddenly they're up there, they're in the lights I love the video in the background that had all kinds of animation. Like that video could have been an entire project in and of itself. Um, And the parents get to see that. And they're like, wow, you know, I didn't know my, my kid could do this. I had no idea my kid could do this. Maybe that's part Mm -hmm. of the answer. And I don't remember exactly who says the line, but I think it's, I think it's um, Joan Cusack. And she says something, you get an A plus and 50,000 gold stars. And Miranda says, didn't do it for the grade. Give me some of that. Yeah. And that's, boom, mm. mic drop. We don't, that's what we want. We want kids yeah. to do what they're doing in school, not for the grade. <laughs> for their own, yeah. you know, growth and for learning and for passion's sake. And so, you know, there is hope. There is hope. And I do think that we're seeing movement. I do think we're seeing some change in some schools and whether it's scalable or not, I don't know, 
Um, not at the rate that we measure mm -hmm. students right now, but I say right. any school, it's a win, you know, it's, you know, when you see a school like Kilbrook school and their high school that they're, they're creating, it's really exciting and it's dynamic and it's about students really kind of learning through being out in downtown and really learning through doing, which is of course the John Dewey philosophy. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that, that you see, you see models and it's just a matter of, can we scale? The interesting thing, like I wasn't going to jump straight into to Hillbrook building a high school, but as I'm meeting weekly with Mike, our new upper school head, a lot of what I'm trying to bring through is, is the systems that shape behaviors with technology. Mm -hmm. And so as Mike's describing this experiential learning, he's like, and what would that look like for a podcast? And so, you know, here's a really simple answer. Here's a really complex podcast studio. You know, what? where are we going to be? Are they going to be in the classroom? Are they going to be in a fancy place? Are they going to be on an iPhone? Um, you know, so here's just kind of a bunch of ideas. And so actually trying to, to build in the hardware and the systems so that uh, there's a bias towards experiential yeah. learning, I think is going to be really interesting, you know, and, and what does it look like if we actually have, you know, like the, the classroom is going to be mostly empty, perhaps, but what if we have a handful of podcast kits, a handful yeah. of portable movie yeah. kits, you know, like that's going to, that's going to shape the behavior of, of those teachers and of those students. You know, so maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's part of the answer too. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think like, I don't know if I were to start a, a school from scratch, what I have, like, even though I was an English major in school and I, I got so much out of learning how to be a great writer. Um, I don't know if I'm a great writer, but I learned a lot about learning to write. And I learned a lot about, um, you know, worlds and human beings from reading literature. I just think that in today's day and age, that's a small part of what a student needs to be able to do. But if they aren't pretty fluent at being able to create audio, create video, um, communicate their learning in multi-mediums to really be able to um, not consume information, but create. I mean, they're just the skills that we need to teach students have really shifted drastically. And so it's not that you wouldn't have a yeah. student read it, a great piece of literature, but you might have them respond to it in a really different way than a five paragraph essay, which is important to learn to do, but that's not yeah. all they need. Now they need much, much more, you right. know? <laughs> well, what you're describing is actually just media literacy, right? Creating and consuming media. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer the five paragraph mm -hmm. essay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so much good stuff in this. Let's do our normal as we wrap things up. Do you have a rewind moment, a part where you watch and you're just like, oof, uh, that, that did not age well, or I wish this had happened differently with the characters? Oh, you know, I think, honestly, I, I was thinking about this today and I, you know, I, I like the movie and I'm sure that there are places that I might've cringed just a little bit. Maybe the, uh, there's the, you know, the, the one kid who's, who's kind of, what I would say is kind of like the flamboyant gay child. I think that that sort of stereotype yeah, a bit yeah. much, although I really liked that character and he was very funny. Um, and I, I think for sure there was a couple other pieces that maybe I, I might play around with, but I, I think my biggest rewind has nothing to do with the movie itself, but really is about like, why can't we do more of this? Like my biggest rewind uh, is not movie. It's like industry. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You want to just school education? 
I like that answer a lot. I have a, a similar take on you. I, I think that a lot of when I watch movies that, you know, and we're in 20 years in with this movie now, my goodness, 20 years. Like a lot of times after 20 plus years, you, there's just so many scenes that don't age well, particularly mm -hmm. in comedies. But I think they did such a great job. You know, like um, there was Lawrence who was like, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm not cool enough. There was Tamika who was like, you know, like I'm overweight and I'm not going to, you know, be popular on the stage and they have a, a whole like beautiful scene around fat shaming and and how like your body is amazing so i think so many of the typical rewinds don't apply at all i think the one thing that i would have wished um and it's not so much a rewind it's that like they didn't add it it it's actually a lesson i learned from high tech high is like where's where's the partnership you know one teacher doing this is gonna for sure burn right. out one teacher doing this like doesn't scale it like where's you know, what if, what happened to that music teacher? <laughs> Do they continue going to music class and learning like, <laughs> I don't not classical, but just kind of, you know, traditional instruments, you know, like what if, what, what that person actually could have been like a really good partner? Like where's, where's, um, where's Dewey's kind of adult band of conspirators? Well, I think also when you think about what you're, what you're saying and, if you think about the way the movie ends, which is that Jack Black now has this mm -hmm. organization called School of Rock, right? Where the kids come to him after school and attend these classes. And in the real world, there is actually a franchise of businesses called School of Rock where kids go after school to take right, music right. lessons. It's like nobody yeah. learned the actual lesson, which is to build it into school, mm. not take it outside right. of school. There's plenty of things kids do yeah. outside of eight to three that are interesting and hands-on. And then they go back into the building where they sit for six to eight hours a day and are bored. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they go and they leave and they do all their fun and interesting stuff when they walk out the door. And so that to me, mm -hmm. that, that ending feels sort of sad. Like why not have them in mm -hmm. school doing this stuff? I like that so much. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just wrapped it all up for us. <laughs> this was so fun. I'm so glad we did it. And I've been really missing recording and I've had a couple people ask me, Hey, what happened to school of rock? <laughs> I'm thrilled that we got Yeah, it. We'll get there. I know. I know. All right. So up next we have. Since I was about 12, I've been looking forward to my sweet 16. You know? 16 candles. You know, this is one I have never seen, okay, Carla. This just not becomes once. more interesting as we do more of these. This is not the first time <laughs> you've. This is like the third or fourth time that you've said. I haven't. I know. And I, I think it's because I'm older than you. I mean, 16 candles was the quintessential movie of my middle school years so it's just there's so yeah. much about it that's good and there's so much about it that's just wrong so i think it's a good one for us to do let's do it and if you're one of those that follows along with us you can watch it before our next episode drops and then you will have your own strong opinions about what you love and do not love about it. Yes. Thanks for joining us folks. It's always great. If you've got some suggestions for movies you'd like us to talk about that talk about school, let us know. Mm -hmm.